Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. And we're in Hebrews, and I know it says Hebrews 19 through 25, but we're gonna, I'm going to go from uh, verse 1 through 25. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which 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 they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said... Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice an offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away, never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as as you see the day approaching. Let's give thanks for God's word. Thank you, Brian, for reading that. I'll cover a couple things here before I jump into the message. Um, first off, um, Bob and Justin, I think this uh, memory verse song we need to add to what we include when we like have our singspiration things on the fifth Sundays. Put that in that collection, or even for family camp, as. We've done a few other of our songs in the past. Uh, I think it's really cool that people here in our church have come up with the tunes for some of our memory songs. It's just, it shows God working through different people as He has gifted them. Um, and that's one of the things that we, we've talked about in this series on a healthy church is the way the Holy Spirit gifts each believer as God chooses for the good of the church. Um, the other thing I want to do before I, I jump into this, stand up if you became a follower of Christ after the age of 20. David Goray, that counts you. You were already standing. Okay, so... I'm counting 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 people. I know that Steve Moore and Chuck Sabo were in that category too. All right, so keep standing, you guys. Sit down if you were 
so the typical college age is like 18 to 22. So if you were, if you were 23 and over when you became a believer, stay standing. That, are any of you 21 or 22? Okay, so all of you are still in that category. Okay, so you can sit down now. The reason I wanted to do that, um, and there, there may have been some that are on by Zoom that would be in that category too. Surveys of Christians typically show that 85 to 90%, sometimes even a higher percentage of believers are people who became saved before they left college. Most of them before they left high school. And I just, those are statistics. God's not limited by statistics. And our church is evidence of that because we have at least 15 people. By my count, that's you guys and the ones I know that aren't here. We have at least 15 people who have been saved after that age. God is not limited by the things that we might think are limiting factors. And actually in a church like this where we're raising our children to know the Lord, we bias it in the other direction because a lot of them come to know the Lord at an early age. By the way, in that count, I'm standing because I'm teaching. I became a believer at seven, so I'm not part of that number. Three of our four elders were after that point where the surveys say you don't have a very good chance. So... The love of God poured out in your lives. It's just great. I start to cry when I talk about the Lord, the love of God. I mean, it just makes me tear up. One of our songs, it was making a mess of me. How can I keep from singing? It's about the love of God. Okay, so uh, I'm going to pray in a minute before I really jump into this, but I wanted to just uh, throw this overview up. Our 10-week series on the marks of a healthy church, we're stretching to 11. Because next week, Bob is going to teach on evangelism, okay? So evangelism has come up, particularly in Acts 2 and Acts 4, uh, the, the, how the church was growing greatly as the, the followers of Christ, the original disciples, were sharing the gospel boldly. But we want to spend one week talking about that specifically, so that's going to be next week. Um, I fa- so, if you remember, when we first started the series, I had up here topics, and they weren't actually the titles of the message. I later changed this title for today. You'll see it in the notes handout to Real Life in Christ, but I forgot to update it on the slide. So, anyway, we're finishing the series next week, but because it's all been about a healthy church, we want to continue to teach expositorily in ways that take that further. So Bob is going to go back to the beginning of Ephesians. Remember, uh, two of the times that he spoke were on Ephesians 4. He's going to go back to the beginning of Ephesians, and we're going to go through the book of Ephesians between now and the end of September, between two weeks from now and the end of September. And then, uh, and then I think, Lord willing, what the elders have been talking about is we're going to go into Acts. So when we go through Acts, it's going to be all about how the church was growing and things we can draw from that. Okay. Um, Before I start in here, let me pray. Let's pray. Lord God, I praise you because of how your love is so powerful. And through Christ, you reach us and draw us to yourself. Help us to understand your word. You see to it that we hear the gospel. And many of us have believed this building, a majority of probably most of the people here, have trusted in you. We are your followers. And I thank you, Lord, that for many of the people in our midst, it's close to probably 25% by the head count this morning. It was after they were past college age. I thank you, Lord, for showing us your power in how you change lives. It it takes just as much power to change my life at seven as it did to change someone else's in their 30s or 40s. It's an amazing awesome work of you. I think we sometimes make it seem less somehow when we quote those statistics. But you are able to reach anyone at any age. They just have to humbly trust. Thank you, Father, that you have made a way through Christ for us to be your adopted children, saved by grace through faith. 
Today, Lord, as, as, uh, as I teach some here out of Hebrews, uh, I ask, Father, that, that you would work in our midst, in each of our hearts, to help us uh, take to heart things from Scripture and to want to be people who are excited to live in the new covenant. Help us to be a church that glorifies you and how we worship you and in how we fellowship and encourage each other and in how we study your word and teach it amongst us, how we feed on it, that we might grow with respect to salvation. Help us to be people who zealously hold out the message of the gospel to people around us who don't know you. And Lord, I ask that you would make us a church where you are glorified in our midst. I think you are already, but I ask, Lord, that you would make that greater, that we would be fruitful in ways that bring you glory, that we would grow in ways that bring you glory, that this church which belongs to you, um, that that would be clear through us to other people that we belong to you, and this is Jesus' church. I also ask, Father, that... Uh, as I teach, that you would let people hear from you directly through Scripture, and what's most important from you would be what people remember, not just my words. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so um, I had Brian back up to the beginning of chapter 10 because I want to talk for a little bit about context. My main points are from verses 19 through 25. But I want to get, give you some context before we get there. In the overall high-level view of the book of Hebrews, the writer has been driving home how great Christ is. He's talked about how Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the high priest, where that means the Jewish high priest. Jesus actually has a priesthood that is greater than the Levitical priesthood. In the order of Melchizedek, he talks about a priest forever. Jesus is, has a better ministry. In chapter 8, he talks about Jesus being the mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant. After he's gone through those things, in chapter 9, he, he digs in kind of deep on, on the uh, uh, really a comparison of the old and new covenants and how how the Levitical priests operated in the Old Covenant compared to what Christ has done to bring into place or inaugurate the New Covenant. And that comes on in into chapter 10. And so the church is not mentioned in this passage, but it is a relevant passage, the 19 through 25, for us because it's the first time after having introduced and covered the New Covenant that the writer of Hebrews is going to give us some exhortation. Much of There has been some exhortation earlier in the book, but most of it is doctrine, teaching. And actually, doctrine means teaching. 19 through 25 is teaching, but it's teaching in an exhortation way of figure out how to do this. He's going to give us some things to do. And so... That's how I see this relating to us as a church because it's the first things he says by way of exhortation after he's finished covering the new covenant. All right, so that's where we are overall in, in, um, in this book. Jesus offered his body as a one-time sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. I'm throwing that out as a summary statement as we go into this section. And I want to talk about these two phrases that I have here. First, Jesus offered his body as a one-time sacrifice. So starting a few verses before chapter 10, before what Brian read, the last four verses of those say this, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, I want you to notice the onces. Once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is verse 26. In verse 27 and 28, it is appointed for men to die once. That's men die once. But after this, the judgment. By the way, this one verse, this is a total tangent, but 27 is a very good verse if you're dealing with anyone who believes in reincarnation. 
die once and then face judgment. And also, anyone who doesn't think that there's a judgment, because it's stating both of those there. Uh, moving into the last verse. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So he's now said twice, once up here, once down here, that Jesus offered himself once for the sins and didn't need to do it anymore. All right, so that's before we even get into chapter 10. In the passage that Brian read, I've got up here four different verses, five verses, four different um, phrases or sentences where the writer is driving it home again. So notice in verse in verse 10, um, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And then in verse 18, there is... Now, now, where there is remission of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. So we've got three more one-time th- statements, and then this one is strongly meaning the same thing. No more offering is needed. Okay, So he's driving this home six times from the end of chapter 9 up to where we're going to get into his exhortation starting in verse 19. Jesus offered his body as a one-time sacrifice. One time. Now, as a tangent, I want to talk briefly about remission here in verse 18. Um, remission does not mean do the mission again. Okay, it's not remission. It comes from the word remit in English. And remit means to, to let go, to, um, to forego. For instance, uh, a government can remit taxes. Um, in our current environment with inflation, I think Georgia did a, a state tax. They called it a waiver because not, they're not making it permanent. You know, they're going to reinstitute it. Our president has been talking about doing that at the federal level. If a government decides to stop collecting a tax, that's remitting a tax. When we then come into the spiritual realm, it would be it would be foregoing a collection of the penalty or absolving the guilt or penalty. For sin. Now I'm going just from the English there. The Greek word has a similar meaning of actually the Greek word has the meaning of pardon, of letting someone go from condemnation, from prison. So the Greek word would be very appropriate in a case where the president pardons someone. Okay? So you can think pardon there. And what that really means is forgiveness. We're forgiven uh, of our sin. So some translations actually have forgiveness there. There is remission, where there is remission of these, the these talking about the sins, there's no longer an offering required. All right. So, in addition, oh, so I wanted to talk about the second phrase. The second part of that phrase, um, Jesus offered his body as a one time sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. So, Bob and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, he and I, uh, and it came up in Sunday school this morning. The idea of blood, the blood of the animal sacrifice covering sin. And to some extent, that kind of language is present in the New Testament too. Jesus' blood covers our sins. Um, the idea of propitiation, that word is used, the English word, several times in the New Testament. Romans 3 has it, 1 John has it. Propitiation means appeasement. Um, so you can think of that as a covering. Uh, it could be a, appeasement could also apply without being a covering. But Romans 3 talks about how God uh, was justified in overlooking the sins of the past because of the sacrifice of Christ that was coming. Okay, so, so the, the idea of covering, I'm not saying that's not true. What I'm saying is that Scripture in the New Testament presents two things and how we put those together, I'm not going to solve for you right now, but I think we have to accept both, okay? So, for the se- second part of this phrase, takes away the sins of the world, notice in Romans 10, verse 4, the writer had said, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I, I'm sorry, what did I say? I, I'm in Hebrews. Yeah, we're in Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then again, in verse... 
12, 11. He's talking about the priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. In the Old Covenant, the blood of those animals was covering those sins, but not taking away sins. So even though we have other New Testament passages that talk about Christ's blood covering sin, what's being implied here is something more powerful, something greater. Remember that high-level overview, Christ is greater than all these different things from the Old Testament. His blood can take away sins. And that's why we have John the baptizer saying in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, A thought that I had this week, and and so at, at this point, I'm speculating, okay? But a thought that I had this week, we talk sometimes, uh, Jesus said it is finished. Tetelestai, the Greek word, an accounting term, reckoning. Um, when he said it is finished, we sometimes talk about having a ledger where we have all our sins and then we get a credit from Christ, which is his sacrifice, and it makes it balance. It reconciles, and I owe nothing. That's accurate. That's true. The thought that I had was I wonder... And this is why I say it's speculation. Don't take this to the bank. But in terms of taking away the sins of the world, I wonder if instead of him crediting his death in my credit account, he took all my debts, the sins, and moved them to his account. Because then my account's still zero. You know, it's empty. But it all went into his account where his death reconciled it all to zero. I don't know. But take away the sins of the world is... A correct statement. It's used several times in the New Testament. And so this is what 19, what the context is as we come into 19 and 25. But I want to add a few more things. In 19 through 20, in, sorry, in verses 9 through 18, we are told a list of things that Jesus accomplished in addition to having offered his body as a one-time sacrifice to take away sins. That's the main thing. But there's some other things here that I think are significant. Verse 9 says that he did God's will. That's important. The Old Testament passage had been quoted, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. That phrase is talking about took away the first covenant to establish the second, the new covenant in place of the old covenant. But verse 10 starts with, By that will... So it's by the will of the Father and Christ accomplishing His will that these things have happened. The other thing in verse 9 is that He established the new covenant. That's what I just mentioned that. He's referring to that in the second part of the phrase. He takes away the first that He may establish the second. Then verse 10 says, He sanctified us. By that will, we been, have been sanctified through the offering of the body. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But by offering his body, he has sanctified us. Now, sanctify means to make holy. The related, this is the, ver, this is the verb. The related word is a noun, and it means holy. It means uh, sacred, um, it stems from this idea that there's a, there's a root word that has to do with something being terrifying, different. So we think of God as different in being holy. But he's made us holy with this verb here. By the offering of his body makes us holy. Now, I'm, I'm talking about believers, to believers. I believe that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people where the majority are believers, but he knows that there may be some non-believers amongst them. And there are things scattered through the book that where he seems to say things that are really more aimed at the non-believers that may be among them. But at this point, he's talking to believers. I'm talking to believers about that. He sanctified us. He makes us holy. This has to do with my identity, because I'm sure you're thinking, sometimes I don't act very holy. Okay, We touched on this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. This idea of your identity having been changed when Christ has come into your life. 
You've yielded to him. And now he's given you his righteousness. He's given you his holiness. He's given you a lot of things and changed who you are. But you don't necessarily think that way yet. Your mind has to be renewed according to the power of God's word. And you don't necessarily live that way consistently. We're to walk in a newness of life. Romans 6 verse 4 talks about. And 2 Corinthians 5 17 says, Old things have passed away, new things have come. But we have some things in our life that carry over that Scripture talks about as our flesh. Our flesh is... There's different ways to talk about flesh, but it's, you can think about it as the strategies you've learned for how to live without God. And so after you're a believer, there's things you have habits, there's things you fall into, there's ways of thinking where you still do things the old way. And God is all about changing that. And He's working in the different areas of your life first here, later here, later here, and He's conforming you to the image of Christ as He changes how you think and as a result, how you act. But your identity is not based on your performance. And that's the key thing I'm trying to drive home here. This is past tense. I'm going to come back to it again uh, in a little bit. But it says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all made holy in God's eyes, okay? Um, Verse 12 and verse 18 together speak of the completed work needed for forgiveness. Christ has accomplished that. Verse 12 says, For he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he sit down? Because he's done working. That work of bringing forgiveness has been accomplished. You can juxtapose that with um, when he talks about the priest in verse 11, standing daily in order to present the sacrifices. Christ has done it once, and he sits down because it's done. It's completed. And then the last one I want to draw out is from verse 14. He has perfected us. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Remember verse 10 had said, we are, we've been sanctified. Now those who have been sanctified or are being sanctified, you get, you get into these tenses and stuff, the are being sanctified, it's continuing. It has happened, and yet it's continuing. One is identity. You've been made holy. That's how God looks at you. But the other is how it's playing out in your life as He's conforming you to the image of God. But on perfection... Perfection means he's made us complete. You don't feel complete, probably. But in terms of your identity, he's made you complete. Which is why, through Christ, we are presented blameless to the Father. When you go look at the church being presented blameless in Ephesians 5, the passage on marriage, but what it says about what Christ is doing with the church. So, and and this is much more Bob's area than mine, but but in the Greek, there are these different tenses for the verbs. And sanctified in verse 10 and perfected in verse 14 are both the perfect tense. The perfect tense means that it's an act accomplished in the past that doesn't have to be done again. It's over. It's been done. Tetelestai, which Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, is the same perfect tense. Okay? So it's a, a work that has been accomplished in the past and is done and doesn't have to be, continue being done. All right? So I got another comment about sanctify, but I think... Well, I'll say it now because I think I got something coming on this. But I want you to think about this. If you have been made holy... Another thing we say about sanctification is that it can mean set apart. You've been made holy. You've been set apart for a special purpose or for a special one. So if you think of dishes in your house, some people have regular dishes. Some people have special dishes, the china, you know, that's for Thanksgiving, Christmas, when somebody special comes over to dinner. And then you got just the regular dishes that you eat on the rest of the year. Well, the china is sort of 
sanctified. It's got a special place where you keep it. You don't pull it out very often. It's set apart. This, this is what's going on here. If we have been made holy through Christ's death on our behalf, we have been set apart for someone, by someone and for someone. So again, it comes back to identity. The ownership has changed. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Most likely, when you think about kingdoms and who you were before Christ, you're going to say either, I lived for myself, or I lived for the devil. Kingdom of self or the kingdom of Satan, one of those two. And maybe they're the same, where the kingdom of self is under the bigger umbrella of the kingdom of Satan, even though you don't think that way when you're a non-believer, most, most non-believers. But now you're in the kingdom of our Lord, and He has set you apart as His. You belong to Him. That's why you're holy. Think about it. Um, he's going to say when we get down to verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You had an evil conscience before you come to Christ. But Christ's blood sprinkles you clean. I've been reading through um, Exodus and Leviticus in my quiet times. And when they first set up the tabernacle and first consecrate um, Aaron and his sons to be priests, there's this ritual that Moses goes to, and Bob has talked about it some in past sermons, where an animal is slaughtered and the blood is sprinkled, uh, dabbed on an earlobe and a finger and a toe, Sprinkled on clothes. And the principle is there, that's there is that when you have something holy that touches something else, that other thing becomes holy. Okay? And, and so in Christ touching us and taking ownership of us, we become holy. Sprinkled with His blood. Even This is an identity thing. Even though you may not feel that way. And this is also an area, both of these are actually areas, where the enemy attacks us. If you think about the various lies that Satan brings, one of them is that God can't forgive you. You're not really forgiven. Isn't that getting at this? Another one is you're not righteous. Another one is you're not set apart for God. You're just a regular dish on the shelf. You're not special. But the, my Bible is saying right here in verse 14, verse 10, by that will, the will of the Father, the will of Christ, we have been set apart, made holy, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right. So now let's um, plunge into 19 through 21. So this is what... I call, I call, I think, I've heard Bob call it, the three lettuces. The three lettuces. So if you're a salad lover, you may be hunting in the text for L-E-T-T-U-C-E. It's not there. Lettuce is not actually in the Bible, which I take comfort in since I'm not a salad lover. <laughs> but L-E-T space U-S, there are three of those coming. All right? And we're being exhorted. This is I, a new and living way. That phrase shows up in verse... Um, 20, by a new and living way, reading that whole verse, start with 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Uh, that new and living way is a new and living way to be, to be with God, to come into his presence. The old way was the animal sacrifice that atoned for a time till you committed your next sins, and then you had to go back and do that again. But it's a new and living way where you have been taken, you, you have yielded to Christ and His sacrifice that is so much better than the offering of bulls and goats and lambs has made you clean. 
has made you His. And you have a new and living way through His body, His flesh, the end of verse 20 says, for how you relate to God. Okay? So 19 through through 21 are kind of a transition to the first lettuce. All right? And there's um, two we haves there that are undergird this first exhortation, the first lettuce. Number one is we have boldness to come to God. Jesus has consecrated a new and living way for us so how we come to God. All right? That's the first thing. And we have this boldness because of who we belong to. This follows on to what I was talking about in being made holy, set, being set aside for Him. It's really whose we are. We now belong to Christ. We belong to the Father. We are His. And because of that, we can come into His presence with boldness. All right? So these are two reasons undergirding the first lettuce. The first one is this relationship we have where we can come with boldness. And the second is that we have a great priest. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute. In your Bible, it says having a high priest over the house of God. Um, let me put all of this up here. So, heroes, heroes is uh, the word for priest. And high priest, as we see it the majority of the time in the New Testament, is actually this word, archheros. I don't know if I said it right or not. But this word arch, the, the root word is arche, and, and it means origin or beginning. And so you can think about that in, return, in regard to the, to the priests. If, if it's the beginning priest or the origin priest, Aaron was the first priest. He was the high priest. His sons were priests without the high. And then when he died, he got replaced. You can also think of it in terms of authority. The beginning of the priesthood authority starts with the high priest, and it flows from him down to the other priest. And so this Greek word is the one for high priest that's used throughout the New Testament. And it's used uh, close to 20 times. I forget the actual number. I think it's 17. In Hebrews. So this is the word normally used. But at this point, in verse 21, we have the regular word for priest with megas in front of it. Megas means great. And it means great in all the ways you could think of great. It can mean great like a great distance, long. It can mean great like a great age. He's old. It means great like in power. Mega probably comes from it. I don't know for sure, but I would think so. Um, and so I think because the writer of Hebrews who's used this word 17 times, I think, somewhere between 15 and 20, all in the, in the book, he now switches and he says this. And I think his point is Jesus is not only a high priest, he's a great priest beyond what we've ever known as a high priest. And so because of the mighty greatness of our Savior, of Christ, and because of that boldness that we have, we can now come to the first lettuce. And the first one is to draw near. He says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So there's several things here. Who are we drawing near to? Well, we're drawing near to God, right? Um, Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16. So this is interesting. Uh, let me read it to you first. Well, seeing then that we have a great high priest, this is the Megas with the Archeros. So I think it's probably the only time that's used, but there you see the two of them combined. So it's great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're drawing near, first of all, to God. And then how are we drawing near? We're drawing near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. So with a true heart, what you need to think of here is this is not a heart that's compromised by manipulation by selfish desires. It's not a true heart 
if you're drawing near because you want God to be your genie who just gives you everything you ask for. Okay. Now, it is valid to go to our Lord to ask for something. That Hebrews 4 verse, which said, draw near, ended in verse 16 with the things we need in life, great mercy and grace for the things of life. Okay. But let's not, let's not think that that means wealth and the name it, claim it, uh, prosperity gospel. That's not what this is. And so your heart's compromised if that's the motive. A true heart is drawing near because of who God is. All right? And in full assurance of faith, not wavering, not doubting, but knowing that Jesus has died to pay for your sins. Knowing He is the, the reason you have this access to the Father and knowing that He loves you. Okay? And then why? i got several whys for drawing near. The first would be salvation, calling out to God. Um, Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. I use New American Standard here because it says draw near. In the New King James, um, I think it says come or approach. Anyway, I'm trying to go with the draw near theme. Um, But you come to God to be saved, to have your sins forgiven. That is a valid reason to come. But again, I said earlier that I think in 19 through 25, he's talking to believers. So I put this up here because this is the original reason to draw near to God. To have your sins forgiven. To be saved. But there are other reasons. I didn't want to leave this one out. But there are other reasons... One of them is to worship. If we go back over to chapter, to still in chapter 10, but verse 2, it says, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. This is talking about the Old Testament, the worshipers of God coming and offering the sacrifices as part of coming to worship Him. Now, this actual word here in the Greek is more like ministering servants in worship. It's not the same word that we think of usually for worship, like when Jesus says uh, to the woman at the well in John 4, um, um, uh, worship me in spirit and truth, or worship the Father in spirit and truth. And He says that you won't worship um, in Jerusalem or in Samaria you worship in spirit and truth. That word for worship, which is what we normally think of, has the idea of adoring God. Reverence is part of that. Thanks, thankfulness. But the, 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 that word for worship used over in John 4 has the idea of... Uh, the first uh, meaning of it, I think, is to kiss the hand, like of royalty. You come forward and you kiss the hand. And in a... My Bible app, it it talks about, it compares it to like a dog licking the master's hand. And, and so the idea is, is, is adoration. It's the reverence, fealty sort of thing because he's great power. But it, but it's not, it's not the fear of being blasted. Okay. Because you have this relationship. We're drawing near. So I, I didn't say it earlier, but I really like this term, draw near. The Greek word here in um, verse 22 is translated come most of the time. Why they translated it draw near here, I don't, I don't know. Because it's come most of the... It means come. But I like the draw near. And so uh, I think in New King James, uh, the, it's like three times in Hebrews that it uses draw near. And, and um, in New Ring Standard, it's five. In the ESV, I think it's four. But, but draw near, when you, all of them, by the way, use draw near here. So we're all on the same page. It's draw near is how, the Eng- how all of these translators have put it in English. I'm not going to take a stab at why, but I'm going to tell you why I like it. Okay. Because draw near has this implication that you've been distanced. And we have separated, right? By our sins. Distance. But you can come close. You have the potential for closeness, for intimacy. You know, I. So, 
it's funny. I don't know if anybody else knew other than Bob and I. I I failed to remind Bob that Jose and Janet were going to share their testimonies this morning. And as Bob was going through testimony time and didn't start with that, I, it was while Justin was giving his testimony, I started to come up here to whisper to Bob, are, are they joining today? And the, I mean, committing today. And, and then I thought, well, you know, maybe we're going to do it after the service, you know, in our question and answer time. And so I let it go. But I would have drawn near to Bob to whisper in his ear. See how it's got a, an idea of intimacy? If, if you draw near for that purpose, not everybody else participates in that moment, all right? If you, have you ever passed a note in a class? You, you kind of, you got to draw near to pass a note, okay? You know, you, you pass a note for that one person to get it, and you hope the teacher doesn't see it and read it out to the whole class. Um, I, I think in the athletic realm of relay races, quarter mile relay race, um, where you got the four runners on, all on a team, and the one that's finishing his lap's got to draw near to the one that's about to start in order to pass the baton. Okay, that's just between the two of them, and they're part of something. Draw near implies being, you're in something together. So fellowship, as we've talked about, it's kind of drawn into this, right? But the focus is God, to worship Him. Adoration, reverence, thankfulness. Those are the words that should characterize worship of God for us. Okay, another thing that I have is to seek mercy and grace in the things of life. And this comes from that Hebrews 4 verse that I had on the screen a few minutes ago, 4 verse 16 says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence or boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. So all the things that you normally think about calling out to God in prayer for, whether it's, we need food for my family. We need um, wisdom and decisions that we're making. Whatever it is, protection. Some We've got problems, health. We need healing. All the things you would call out to God for fall under here, seeking mercy and grace in the things of life. And then the fourth one I have is to share life. I mentioned briefly, draw near kind of implies that. But again, remember, this is focused on God. He's the one we're drawing near to because we are in fellowship with Him. This is a verse that I came across recently, 1 Corinthians 1.9. I shared it back at the beginning of the series, I think. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been called into fellowship with Christ. We normally think of fellowship as one another. We've been called into fellowship with Christ. We draw near because we're in it with Him. Okay? Um, Last verse on this, slightly different angle. But the truly knowing God, we draw near to know Him. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. This is in His prayer in John 17 to the Father. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I want you to think of this drawing near with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith as how you would draw near to your heavenly Father in your relationship with Him. So there's all kinds of ways you can apply that. When you pray, you're drawing near. When you spend time reading the Word, wanting to hear from Him, you're drawing near. Conversation with Him, where you're praying and thinking of Scripture or in your quiet time, that's drawing near. Okay? All kinds of applications you could come up with that. But I need to move on. So the next one in verse 23 says, let me get to it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So I just want to say a few things about this um, before I get to this verse. Hold fast has the idea of clinging to something. We had a song here. Was it this one on the bulletin? It was one in the... No, 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 it's right here. There's an endless song, echoes in my soul, I hear the music, and though the storms may come, I am holding on to the rock I cling. Um, Hold fast, when I looked it up in in Blue Letter Bible, 
The example they gave was of a helm, a helmsman holding the helm of the ship fast so it stays on course, keeping it locked in. That was holding fast. But another one would be the boat capsizes, you're out in the sea, you're going to hold fast to whatever floats, right? If something floating is there, you're going to grab it and hold fast because that's important to keeping you from dying, right? And here in this song, hold fast to the rock. The idea is so you don't get washed away by the storms of life. Holding fast is something you do with all your might. Well, what are we to hold fast to? The confession of our hope. Confession here, the number one thing we normally think of with the word confession is a criminal that gets arrested and he confesses to something. And that is a valid meaning of this word. But the six times that it occurs in the New Testament, it actually means a statement of faith. So think of the Augsburg Confession, which is fundamental, foundational in Lutheranism. Think of the Westminster Confession, which is important to Presbyterians particularly. Um, Those are statements of faith. That's what this means here. Hold fast to the statement of your belief in regard to your hope. It's not just a statement of faith. It's in regard to your hope. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. And so that's what leads me to 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So it's important that we know how we we know what our confession of our hope is. You need to know what your confession of your hope is. If you're a follower of Christ, from what you know of him and of scripture, what would you say is your statement of belief in regard to your hope? So for me, it might be something like, and this might be true for you too, Jesus died for my sins. He paid the penalty of my sins and He rose from the dead on the third day. And in faith in Him, I've been saved by His grace and I've been made new. I am His child. He's put His Holy Spirit in me, giving me abundant life. And one day he's coming again and he's going to save me from the wrath of God that's coming upon the rebellious people of the world. Your confession of your hope may change depending on the situation to emphasize one thing or another. A confession of your hope could come from a verse you've memorized. One of my favorites is John 5, 24. So I I might say the confession of my hope is that Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I have hope in Christ because of the eternal life he's giving me and that I've passed spiritually from death to spiritual life already. And one day I'm passing through physical death to a new body in heaven and no judgment. You know, it's going to be a little different for each person, but you need to think it through. What is your confession of your hope? So, I've got here four things I want to throw out. It's really, well, four things I want to throw out. If you're taking notes, the green is the key things, and the purple is where I'm just giving examples of what comes to my mind right off the bat. So a confession of my hope is going to be about Jesus. Everything else there falls under that, all right? It's going to be about who he is. So there's things that come to my mind. I wouldn't necessarily use all of them when I'm stating a confession of my hope, but he's the Son of God. He's Yahweh in human form. He's the Lord, the Savior, the Lamb of God. Second thing is, what has he done? Well, he died on a cross to pay for my sins. He rose from the dead. You can stick other things in there. He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in me. And then the last one is, why I hope in him. This is where the hope part comes in. You can have a... a a statement of belief about Jesus and leave out why you're hoping. You can kind of hope that it's implied because you've mentioned that he's the son of God who died on the cross to pay for sins and he rose from the dead. But I think it's valuable to stick in why you're hoping. So things that come to mind to me is he gives me eternal life. I left out the life part. He gives me eternal life. Typo. He brings me forgiveness. He saves me. 
He brings me to God into a right relationship with the Father. So I put these up there just to try to stimulate your thinking because I think sometimes when we come to this verse in Hebrews chapter 10 and it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, I'm not sure we always know what we would say. Push a button, confession of my hope. Uh, don't let it be a... Uh, think it through, okay? Confession of your hope so that it comes out. Because it also says without wavering. Don't want to waver in it. I want to be able to get it out there. What it is I'm hoping in. All right, the third one where we're going to finish is to consider one another to stir up love and good works. This is in verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, studying this has been a little bit eye-opening to me because I have memorized this verse for years in the New American Standard, which says, let us consider how to stimulate one another. But in the New King James, the word order is flipped. On the stimulate, let me just throw this up here. New King James and ESV say stir up. New American Standard says stimulate. King James says provoke, which is the one I like the best. Provoke one another to love and good deeds. But what was interesting for me this week is in the Greek, the word for one another comes before the word for stirring up or provoking or stimulating. But in the version that I'd learned it in, it comes across like consider how to stimulate. Really, when you put this all together, the bottom line is it doesn't make a big difference. But for me, it was making a difference because the emphasis, I think, in the Greek is to consider one another in regard to how I can provoke you to love and good deeds. So that it was a change in emphasis for me in looking at that. Consider one another. So in other words, I would consider Justin, and I might pray about Justin and think and ask God, how can I help Justin to show love for other people? I might consider Brian and from the things I know about Brian and what God's doing in his life, how can I how can I stir him up for a good deed? You see what I'm getting at? The emphasis has changed a little for me. And I like that. It's cool. But it's still the bottom line is the idea of considering the people around you who are brothers and sisters in Christ and how can you help them to love and do good deeds. Right? That's what this is all about. Um, yeah, so I like the word provoke. Just to, as I'm ending this, verse 25, I th- 25 is under this umbrella for me. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Why would we forsake the assembling of ourselves together? Well, one reason is we get tired of being provoked. <laughs> Make sure you're provoking people to love and good deeds, not provoking them in some other way. But we don't, to be honest, sometimes you go through something in your life and you don't want to be stirred up to love and good deeds. Okay? And you stop being around those brothers and sisters that are stirring you up to love and good deeds. And what happens from that? Well, you're going to continue to not be stirred up. And you're not going to be around believers. And you're on a bad path. At that point, you go into church funk where you don't want to be around church. And that's a dangerous place. It's an understandable place. There's other reasons where people end up in church fatigue. But um, there's a lot of reasons why that can happen. But it's a dangerous place. You don't want to linger there long. And, And so under the umbrella of stirring one another up to love and good deeds is the not forsaking our own assembling together because the stirring up is going to decrease. It's going to happen less if you're not gathering together. Okay? Then the other participial type phrase is, um, he says, uh, encouraging one another or exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day drawing near. All of this stirring up to love and good deeds is about encouraging us to live like Christ when you think about it. And so the focus here is on provoking Christ's likeness 
in each of us. And this is all bathed in love. If I'm considering how to provoke you to love and good deeds, I got to be loving you. Right? This is falling apart if you're just looking to pick on someone and point out how they're falling short. That's not it. Let me give you an example. When I was in college, I was in a Bible study with a guy who was a, a year ahead of me in school. He was the one leading the Bible study. And we would do various things together. One day he comes to my dorm room in the mid-afternoon after my last class of the day, knocks on the door, opens the door. It's Lee. Hi, Lee. What, what are you here for today? Mother's Day is this coming Sunday. Let's go to the bookstore and buy Mother's Day cards. We'll mail them to our moms. Okay. He picked his time where it was after my class. I wouldn't have a, any good excuse. He chose it on a Monday where there's time to get the card, write the thing, mail it, and it'll get there before... You know, Saturday at the latest, so mom has it on Sunday. He was stirring me up to love and good deeds and honoring my mom. Okay? It was great. Lee, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, let's go do that. And we went over to the bookstore and we bought cards. So I, I give you that as an example. Love and good deeds is not always something that you would think of as super spiritual. But it's, this is all about encouragement, encouraging the other person to be like Christ. Okay? And you should be doing it with them. His encouragement, his provoking of me was him going with me. It wasn't just telling me, I, you need to do such and such. Okay? It was, let's do this together. All right, so love, good works, being together, encouragement, that all falls under that. Now, I want to say uh, one more thing, and then I'm going to be done. I want you to notice how these focus on different categories of people. Drawing near to God in the first lettuce, let us draw near to God. The focus is on God. He's the one who loves our souls. He's the one who saves us. We're drawing near to Him. You can do that individually. We can do that corporately. We're doing that when we worship. But we're doing that in all the different ways that we might do things together as a church or in subgroups. But the focus is on God. Okay? For the second one, hold fast the confession of your hope. I propose to you that the main focus of that is non-believers. That's where it has the big bang for the buck. And the 1 Peter 3.15 verse was about being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. It didn't say confession of hope, but your confession of your hope is maybe how they knew you had hope. And now you need to give reasons for it. Okay? Now, I'm saying primary. There is value with God. For the confession of your hope. Jesus said, if any man confesses me before men, I'll confess him before my Father in heaven. If any man denies me, I'll deny him. Now that probably means confessing Jesus as in he's my Lord and Savior. Doesn't necessarily have to be a long confession of hope. But you're identifying with him. He is your Lord and Savior. That's what I think that probably means over in that Matthew verse. But the idea is still there. You're glorifying God when you give a confession of your hope. And the confession of your hope can encourage your fellow believers. They hear you say, why you're hoping in Christ. Encourages them in their own hope, okay? But I think the primary point of confession of our hope is towards the non-believers around us. And then the consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. That, the focus, is on believers, on our church, on our fellow followers of Christ where we're exhorting one another and helping each other and racing together in the path of being conformed to the image of Christ. So, I'm going to end it there. Let me say a prayer and then we'll sing one more song. Father, I thank you for these exhortations in the book of Hebrews. Lord, we desire to be a church that honors and glorifies you. And I think each of us desires as individual people to honor and glorify you. Help us, Lord, to take these things to heart, to practice them. I think for many in this group, 
Many of us are aware of these, or at least particularly of the last one, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We've heard that taught and preached. But it may be that we need to redouble our efforts. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would work in us, help us to love you with whole hearts, and I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before Justin comes up, I'm going to bop through my questions. Do you draw near to God, and how is that going? You may need to work on that in your own walk with Him. Can you state a confession of your hope? Um, I went the wrong way. Are you holding fast to it? Those are different things. You may know how to state it, but you may not be holding fast to it. Do you consider how to stir up others to love and good deeds? And then finally, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore the way you act?